Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor. Today is Thursday, July 2nd. Happy Canada Day. Yesterday was Canada Day, 153rd. And uh, happy birthday to this awesome country. I am definitely feeling it today with a couple of beverages yesterday. Um, how are you feeling today, Simon? I, I know I am uh, in rough shape. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling okay. I guess uh, I did have some uh, a few drinks, but uh, I stayed well hydrated because uh, I'm a little older and you have to make sure you uh, your intake of water actually is similar to that of booze if you want to be able to survive the next day. I uh, did not keep a good healthy ratio, but that's okay. <laughs> Here we are. Speaking of ratios, Tesla is now 28% more valuable than the second largest auto manufacturer, Toyota, in the world. Now worth more than Honda, BMW, GM, Ford, Fiat Chrysler, Hyundai, Suzuki, and Subaru combined. We talked about this this stock at being so expensive at 800 US, and it's uh, well, well north of 1,000. I think it's like 1,200 a share today. Absolutely nuts. Uh, it's really hard to understand why this stock is more than Toyota, who makes 25 times more cars than them. I get it. They have an amazing market share of electric vehicles. I get it. The cars are sweet. I love driving them. This is hard to wrap my head around this kind of valuation. And any value investor is just going, what is going on? Uh, Elon Musk tweeting that the stock is overvalued. It is still not enough to send it down. Hilarious stuff. What do you, what do you think when you see a company like this and they're continuing to execute well and we keep looking stupid? It's like Shopify when it keeps going up. Does the tide ever come in on this thing? What's happening? Um, I mean, we'll see what happened with Tesla. I mean, at least Shopify has some solid earnings growth and they're really dominant in uh, in what they do in terms of Tesla. I mean, yeah, they're the leaders in electric vehicles, but a lot of it is, you know, Elon Musk's. And if you look at the some of the things that happen, like one of the big reasons it's uh, up today is because they surpass estimates with uh, deliveries in the second quarter instead of... Uh, being, I think uh, the prediction was like 70-something thousand. They pumped out 90,000 deliveries, but who the hell knows what a delivery means? It doesn't equal necessarily revenue. Um, their metrics sometimes are a bit wonky, and uh, Elon has a tendency to push its workers to uh, do basically 24-hour shifts when they're co- getting close to the end of a quarter. So it's, I mean, I don't know. I, we could be talking about this six months from now. It'll be two grand a share, but at the same time, it's, um, I don't know if it's driven by institutional investors or retail investors. I know a lot of people in Robinhood I think this is one of their favorite stocks um, because they are allowed to purchase fractional shares on there. Um, like, I, I really don't know what's driving this or it's just, you know, 
pump and dump for a lot of uh, uh, powerful investors. Um, I don't know. Your guess is probably as good as mine. For sure. It is definitely interesting to try to understand how this thing is just going to the moon. Um, and I don't really want to compare it to Shopify because those are very, very different stories. Very expensive, but very different stories. So, Simon, today we're going to talk about a real estate investment trust as requested by a listener. H&R REIT, tell me about rent collections over the last couple months. Yeah, so it was requested by Shannon. Uh, I'm not going to try to say your name, Shannon, because uh, your last name, because I feel I'll totally butcher it. Uh, but thank you, Shannon, for uh, for bringing this up and your questions. So our H&R REITs, so um, in terms of uh, H&R REITs, so it's a diversified REIT. So they do own residential, industrial, and office and retail. And Braden, I'll break it down for us a bit later on. Um, collection of rent as of June 16, 2020 was going pretty well, according to uh, management. So I listened to their update uh, uh, that they sent out a couple weeks ago. Uh, 95%, uh, 99% of office rents were collected, 92% of residential, 54% of retail and 97% of uh, industrial rent. So those are all uh, pretty good number. They said they're consistent with previous months. Um, so that's very good on their end. The one thing that uh, I find a big uh, red flag and management spun in it in a way that was a good thing. I'm not sure I agree with that, but they said they are working with their various renters, whether it's businesses or individuals, to ensure that uh, they can get access to government subsidies so whether individuals have laws or jobs or businesses are eligible for different government loans or subsidies so they're working with them to help them uh, tap into those subsidies which makes me think that there could be a good percentage of the renters that could be in distress once those subsidies uh, stop being issued by the federal government so that is something i would keep an eye on for them yeah, very good point to, to be monitoring that. The stock is down 51% since the uh, pandemic started. And wow, it's uh, it seems really, really cheap here. Uh, but again, it's, it's in one of those sectors right now that just no one wants to touch. The ones that just the recovery just doesn't look obvious. It's not painted out clearly, especially with... South of the border, cases are running rampant right now. It's the highest daily case count than ever. And here we are in July. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really, really hard to, to understand when what this recovery looks like. And, and a lot of these companies that are down in such a big way, they get bucketed into this and no one will touch. Everyone's moving capital to recurring revenue software. And it looks really, really cheap here. And the stock is yielding 6.5% after the dividend cut. So there was a dividend cut. Uh, it was yielding north of 10%, if I recall correctly there, Simon. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, probably like 12%. And, um, yeah, so even, at, even with this cut, it's 6.5%. The dividend cut, it seems like an aggressive cut. Um, because the, the dividend is very well covered by funds from operation, which is a cash flow metric that real estate investment trusts use. Uh, that's basically what people look at 
in terms of earnings is FFO and adjusted FFO. So that FFO being funds from operations. So that's the main metric that people use for real estate investment trusts. And it's really, really well covered. They probably didn't need to cut it in half. But again, they're being very, very conservative. And investors are still getting a juicy, almost close to 7% yield. So I, I back I back the decision. I mean, not every dividend cut is, is bad news. I mean, it's not particularly ever great news by any stretch. Uh, so they do most of their business in Canada, but it's, it's pretty close. Uh, 55% in Canada and 45 in the US, 29% in Ontario, 17% in Alberta, that being the two big jurisdictions. Uh, and then other Canadian provinces as well. They have some big office towers in New York, Texas, Toronto. And uh, Simon, tell us, tell us a little bit about the portfolio by segment. Uh, yeah, so they they kind of break it down in two ways. They either give the fair value or the share of rent. Uh, fair value, I feel like it's an interesting one, but at the same time, um, the value, as they said in their call, uh, they actually had to lower the value of certain of their assets because of uh, they're very difficult to value right now with the uncertainty in the market. So I think share of rent is probably a better way to look at it. Um, so residential is 17%. Uh, from what I could see on their map, it's all US-based industrial six uh, percent share of rent it's a mix between us and western canada office is 44 percent of rent uh, mix between us and canada and i think it's a lot of it is located in ontario uh, and retail 33 percent share of rents and again it's a mix between us and canada but uh, definitely more concentrated in canada so even though we said earlier it is a diversified REIT um, you can just by the numbers I gave you, it's highly concentrated in office and retail. And given the uncertainty with the pandemic, those are probably the two sectors of uh, REITs that I'd be the most careful with, uh, just because obviously retail and office, like your guess is as good as mine to where that's going to end up in, uh, you know, two, three, four, five years from now. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. And like I said, the, the path... The recovery just doesn't look obvious. So as there's so much uncertainty, that's going to be baked into the price. And that's why you're seeing the stock down so much. I do think, you know, the the rest of the portfolio, residential and industrial adding up to 30% total, looks really, really undervalued uh, from my perspective. So I'm seeing tons of uh, really prominent value investors who basically never buys real estate investment trusts as a rule are dumping tons of capital into real estate um, and and preaching that it's probably one of the most undervalued sectors uh, right now on the stock market and real estate investment trusts. I tend to agree with them, yet uh, it doesn't excite me that much. Uh, based on those things we just talked about. And office and retail, those are just in two. Those two things are both on the wrong side of trends right now. Retail brick and mortar space has been on a decline for, you know, a decade now as e-commerce really, really gains more and more traction. And all this pandemic is doing it is, 
increasing the speed at which people adopt e-commerce. So that's the retail segment. And then the office segment, which I, I, I don't, I don't dislike much. I think people will be going back to the office. I think people miss the office. But you are seeing a, a big shift where a lot of companies will just say, okay, uh, we're not going back to the office or we're going to cut our office space in half and have half the office in and, 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 and do that as a long-term play because they've realized that they don't need to always be in the office, but they appreciate the ability to also have that face-to-face. So that makes a lot of sense to me. That being said, those are two bad things for real estate investment trusts uh, that are concentrated in retail and office. So something to consider. I think that there's some really great real estate investment trusts that we've talked about on this podcast, like Allied and CapReit, like Canadian Apartment REIT, InterRent, uh, those being in the office and residential spaces, uh, those ones mentioned. I think that there's better names out there uh, from me scanning h and I've never owned a position, but I do think it's a pretty well-run company. It's been around for a while. So I think I think value investors are very into opening a position here, and, and I would back it, to be honest. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a bad idea per se. If uh, It's definitely a value play. The one uh, thing I would recommend to people looking to start a position in them is uh, stay on top of it. So definitely listen to every single quarterly update because to me, the biggest thing I'll be looking at is when we uh, the rent collection. So if you start seeing some red flags about the rent collection, uh, that's probably where I'd really... You know, you could keep it another quarter, but if you start seeing the trend that they're struggling uh, getting rents, especially in the retail and business or office space uh, portion of their portfolio, which are the two biggest, um, you might want to look into selling. So um, as a closing note on them, they do have a decent amount of liquidity. So management did want to highlight that during that update in June. Um, So they have about $1 billion in uh, liquidity and cash and cash equivalent. So they had uh, recently got a a $500 million unsecured line of credit, um, $100 million from a 10-year mortgage, and $400 million from unsecured debentures, which is debt unsecured, so not backed uh, by assets. Um, so yeah, that's about my uh, two cents on HR, H&R REIT. That is a lot of liquidity. Thanks for pointing that out. Uh, yeah, so they're able to secure tons of, tons of cash. Um, so yeah, all of these things you're seeing... These the management is very conservative, uh, you know, slashing the dividend in half, uh, grabbing a billion in liquidity. They're being really, really conservative here. And when we say liquidity, we just mean cash. Um, that's that's it. Moving on, Simon, we've had another question about oil. Do you want to take this one? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, we've had quite a few questions about oil stocks. So this one um, we got from Syed Haider, and I apologize uh, if I'm butchering your name once uh, again. Uh, you can butcher mine like Braden does from time to time. So every episode, <laughs> every episode, I butcher your name. It's yeah, okay. exactly. Um, so at uh, AWAIS035. So he asks us, can you discuss some of the oil stocks in Canada? So I'm 
I'm not going to, I'll mention some Canadian names in here, but I want to give you a bit more of a breakdown how the oil industry works um, and some of the type of companies that I would definitely avoid if I wanted to invest in oil stocks. So generally, you'll have three types of business for uh, oil and gas stocks. So you'll have upstream, midstream and downstream. So upstream, uh, let's start from there. So that's uh, exploration and production, ENP. So those are uh, companies that produce, um, you know, get it out of the ground, whether it's the tar sands, whether it's traditional oil field, whether it's uh, fracking, doesn't matter. That's a, that's usually businesses that have, um, that will do upstream. Um, there are businesses that will do upstream, midstream and downstream. So those are called integrated companies, but I will come to those a bit more at the end. So an example of an upstream company, I tried to find some in Canada and I couldn't find a lot that were specifically just pure play upstream but a good example is uh, Chesapeake in the US and they actually just filed for bankruptcy so one of the issues with upstream companies is they're it's very capital intensive so it costs a lot to start producing and they are often very very dependent on the price of oil uh, the second type is midstream so Usually midstream, it's transportation. Uh, so you have uh, pipelines in there. Um, you can have uh, railways that would be considered like have a part midstream if they're carrying by train oil, for example. Um, so some example of companies in there. So you can have either companies that focus on uh, oil in terms of transportation or natural gas. Natural gas gets a little trickier because it's uh, liquid natural gas. So it is called natural gas for a reason. So it has to be um, put at extremely cold temperature, minus 162 Celsius in order to get it in liquid form. Um, and in terms of that, so example of that, you'd have Enbridge, Kinder Morgan, TransCanada Corporation. So those, I mean, in terms of my personal preference in, uh, for oil stocks, I don't mind these companies at all uh, just because they will tend to have long-term contracts with uh, producers to transport the oil or the natural gas. So usually um, they'll do they won't be as tied to um, the price of oil as the upstream companies. Um, however, if you get a big price shock to the price of oil or natural gas, um, they can still be impacted if some of their contracts are held by companies that go bankrupt. So there is some risk there as well. They tend to be highly leveraged, but because they have those guaranteed contracts, usually they'll have more stable cash flows and uh, they'll pay some really good dividends. So you can just check uh, Enbridge or Kinder Morgan. Um, they pay quite high dividend. I think uh, those two, they're in the six, seven, eight percent range right now. And the last one, so downstream. So downstream uh, typically will be more the refiners. Um, so they tend to actually do fairly well when the prices go lower because they can purchase oil at uh, a lower price and then get a bigger margin on it. Um, however, again, if we get into a situation like happened uh, in March and April of this year where the demand completely stops and then the production completely overflows and the storage is completely full, uh, uh, then refiners also get impacted. Um, so my personal preference, if I would invest in oil and the only one that the only investment pure play right now that I have in oil and I had some more before is Kinder Morgan. And that one I'm thinking of selling just because I can I think I can invest that money better elsewhere. Um, but aside from that, I'd looked at integrated companies. So 
integrated company. It says in the word, uh, for the most part, they'll have upstream, midstream, and downstream operations. And some of them will also have retail. So an example of retail operation would be Suncor in Canada. So they have upstream, so they have tar sand exploration and production over there. Um, they do have some transportation. I believe they have pipelines. Uh, they own some refineries as well, and they have the retail portion. So it really allows them to better absorb the uh, the price of oil, so the fluctuations. Um, some other example, Imperial Oil, Husky, a Canadian company, Husky Energy, uh, Shell, ExxonMobil. So the integrated companies usually will be more solid financially, but again, even with the recent price uh, drop in oil prices, uh, Suncor actually had to cut their dividend. It was widely considered as one of the top Canadian oil companies. Um, Last thing I would say in terms of what to look for if you're looking to invest in oil, um, just keep a close eye on the debt of those companies and the interest payments. Avoid companies that have super high leverage. Um, I would stick personally with either pipelines or integrated companies. But again, uh, pipelines, uh, one of the risks that I did not mention is that um, you have regulatory risks. So just take the example of the Trans Mountain or the Keystone XL pipeline. So there have been hurdles one after the other. So that's definitely a risk for those. Um, for integrated company, I would look at what their break-even price is. So most company, they should tell you basically, as long as the price per barrel is say like $25 we'll break even and we won't lose any money so the lower the break-even price is the better it is for certain companies so right now the bankruptcies that we're seeing the oldest sectors are usually for companies that their break-even price was 40 50 60 dollars a barrel so obviously as low as it is right now they're losing money they're emerging cash left and right center um, so that's something I would look at and make sure that their dividend is well covered. But again, even if it's well covered like Suncor, uh, they still ended up cutting it uh, recently. So it's really difficult to project these type of companies and um, you never really know what's going to happen going forward. Uh, really, the long term trend in terms of oil um, the consensus is that we're going to be in peak oil sometime between 2020 and 2040. And after that, uh, the overall global demand will go down. So, yeah, that's about my, my breakdown on oil and gas, uh, Braden. Simon, I didn't know you were uh, so well-versed in the industry. All, my, all the Albertan listeners are, uh, are very proud of you right now. I... For me, for me, I have a I have a checklist of investing in companies when I open a position, and that checklist involves pricing power. And this topic I will continue to repeat on every podcast episode is high quality companies are able to set their own prices. And oil companies do not meet that check. They are subject in every way of their business to the price of a commodity. So I do not purchase commoditized businesses for that exact reason. I do think there's 
you can buy it. You can buy some of the stuff on your book. Uh, really, really nice yields on some of them, and some of them are very quite safe yields, like you just mentioned, Suncor, even after the, before the cut, and they cut it more. Um, there's a there's a place there's always been a place for it in a like retirement portfolio where people basically just own the banks and energy stocks and get really high dividend yields. It's just not the best place for capital in my opinion. And maybe there will be some big recovery in, in oil, but it's been a underperformer for so long now. And it's also, again, one of my avoid rules is being on the wrong side of a trend. I don't want to get too philosophical about this, but we need to, as humans, get off of our extreme alliance on oil and gas. Is it going to happen tomorrow? No. Does it need to happen very soon? Yes. Will we accomplish that? I don't know. But it is on the wrong side of a trend to renewables, electric vehicles, more efficient electric heating. It's all going to change the long-term demand for oil. And that's a good thing. I know, again, the Albertans are like, no, horrible. It is a good thing. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, and I mean, I just to add to what you just said, um, you have to be careful with the metrics that you look at for these oil companies too. And the, one of the issues I have with oil companies is they're very difficult to value and very unpredictable. So like Braden said, renewable companies, uh, renewable energy producers, for example, their input costs will tend to be fairly stable, uh, especially if you're looking at wind or solar. So they have fairly, you know, fairly constant costs whereas you look at oil companies and it can really fluctuate up and down um, uh, and it's really hard to predict in terms of their input costs but also in terms of their total revenue and you have to be careful when you look at them from a price to book basis because uh, if you guys looked that up two days ago um, Shell actually announced that it was writing off 22 billion in terms of assets and Shell has actually been one of the companies that's been uh, one of the oil majors, uh, integrated companies that's been investing in renewable energy the most. I think they're, they've been investing two to three billion every year in renewable energy. And they've said it like like you just said, Braden, that uh, they're trying to focus more and more on that. But it just goes to show that even if you're looking at the assets, OK, it might look like a good value. But if the company is uh, writing off 22 billion in assets because they're just saying, yeah, it's not worth as much as we thought now. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely not a good thing, but, uh, yeah, long-term trend is definitely not looking great for the oil and gas industry. And like, like you, I really think that's a good thing. Yeah, no, it, it is a good thing. I'm an environmental engineer myself, working in renewable energy. This is, this is a, a long-term trend that is not going anywhere because it has to change. Anywho. I have an announcement. Stratosphere 2.0 is launching, and I need testers and beta users. If you are interested in using a new service to manage 
all of your investment research in one place, send me an email, Braden at stratosphereinvesting.com. Timeline, we're looking at September, October. This will give you a dashboard, financial 10-year statements, stock screener, model portfolios, uh, tons of features, earnings calendars, analyst reports, everything, all in one place to manage your DIY investment portfolio on Stratosphere 2.0. It's going to be huge. Braden at stratosphereinvesting.com, and we can chat. Simon, anything else you'd like to discuss? Happy Canada Day, everyone. Give me, give, what, are, what are your thoughts right now? What's, what, what are you looking at in the market? What are you noticing? What kind of trends are you seeing? Uh, I am seeing that the amount of capital going into software as a service companies, trading at like 20 times, earning, uh, 20 times sales, is just unbelievable. I don't think it's .com 2.0. I don't. Um, I think the, the profitability of these companies is much better. Uh, but still, it seems a bit nuts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to agree with that. Um, I can see why people love those companies. But again, you have to... I mean, we talked about Shopify. I mean, the multiple is just insanely high. I mean, I still think they're going to be here for the super long term. But um, at the price they're trading at, I'm not sure how long it's going to take you to actually make some decent returns on that investment. Um, yeah, it seems like people are looking for places to, to put their money in and they're looking at uh, software as a service as a as a good place to, to start putting their money. Um, if you look at the, the indexes, they're definitely skewed towards uh, big tech in general. So I would say people looking at the market and thinking that they're completely overvalued. I think some sectors might be more overvalued than others, but because those indexes uh, for the S&P 500, it's market cap weighted, you know, a big price jump in Amazon, uh, Microsoft, or any of those big tech companies affects the index quite a bit. So I think it's unevenly spread out right now. Um, I think there's still some really good companies, not necessarily in software as a service, but other uh, industries that still require a decent look at. For sure. And you bring up a good point. The indexes are so heavily weighted on big technology. And, uh, you know, this is why if you buy a S&P 500 index fund, yeah, you're getting 500 companies. But since it's market cap weighted, you are getting such, such large exposure to the top 10 holdings, top five holdings. Uh, the FANG stocks are just going to be such a large portion of your S&P 500 fund. And that's been good for performance over the last 10 years. It's been really good. It's, it's been un- unbelievable how much these companies are carrying the entire index to all-time highs in a pandemic. And people are going, oh, well, how is this, how is this happening? It's so divorced from reality. I agree. It's completely divorced from reality. But the companies that are putting the entire index on their back and, and, and pushing it to all-time highs are companies that should be at all-time highs. Those companies should be at all-time highs. 
Microsoft should be at all-time highs. They noted, they saw 80% increase in Microsoft Teams usage when everyone got sent home from the office. 80% increase in their platform that they're really trying to push that is their big competitor to Slack and was widely, instantly accepted. Uh, so they did an extremely good job of doing that. And, you know, these kinds of companies should be at all-time highs. Some, some, some shouldn't in a pandemic, but some definitely should. And that's why you're seeing the market explode and hit all-time highs in a pandemic. It's, it's, it's really quite simple. It's, it's just a handful of companies really, really performing well, while others struggle or recover a little bit as we, you know, move out of a lockdown. So that's what I'm seeing right now. Uh, and that's just how the math works out. Simon, you want to send us off here? Yeah, yeah, no, I uh, totally agree with that. And the last thing I would probably just mention is uh, for those bargain basement companies, whether we've talked about them, airlines, uh, tourism industry and things like that, um, there's been some of those that got like a 2, 3x uh, within like a few weeks or a month in terms of increase. When it... <sighs> When it looks too good to be true, it probably is. So I would probably be careful with those type of companies. But the solid ones that Braden just mentioned, yeah, I mean, there might be a pullback eventually, but those are companies that will be here in 10, 15, 20 years. So um, I think those are, are solid picks. You know, if you want a dollar cost average, you can't really go wrong with that. Uh, but yeah, so I guess we'll uh, that we'll call it an episode. Uh, thank you for listening to the uh, Canadian Investor. Uh, we love talking about these things with you guys keep giving us some great feedbacks if we have questions tweet at us at uh, cdn underscore investing and we'll uh, talk to you guys next week the canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice Braden or simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Investor. To get a list of the top Canadian dividend stocks right now and other valuable investing resources, go to GetStockMarket.com.